you know, I had been at that point, I'd built a tree house and I'd been living in this tree for seven years. And so I had got all these other contacts from treehouse owners all across the country. And I was uh, busy then. I had the idea of writing a treehouse book. And I thought that was my way out of this non-profitable uh, business that was failing. And so I tried to write a proposal. I wrote this big proposal and sent it around and got universally rejected. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was like, well, hello, Tempe. This is my only option. Like, Hi there, Veggie Mates. You just heard from this week's special guest, Seth Tibbet. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is episode 71 of the Veg Talk podcast. Welcome back to those who have tuned in before and to those checking us out for the first time. I send you a huge welcome and thank you for choosing to spend some of your day with us. To the regulars, thank you for sticking around. It has been a few months since our last episode was released. The break wasn't one uh, I initially planned. Um, It's definitely been a time where I've probably been thinking a little bit too much about the future and other silly human things like that. I am stoked to be back. I love doing this and will continue to bring you conversations throughout 2020 and beyond. Uh, Once again, thanks for sticking around. I truly do appreciate it. I also hope this episode finds everyone safe and well. Uh, It's been a crazy time in human history. Uh, And yeah, sending love to you and your families. So with that being said, let's shift our focus to this week's special guest. So you may have heard of a little old company called Tofurky. Well, Seth, our guest today, is the founder. Seth has recently released his book, In Search of the Wild Tofurky, which is an incredible account of his life, navigating his tempeh business, which was born right here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I love this quote from Guy Raz. He is uh, the podcast host from How I Built This on NPR. And this is the quote, Seth Tippett is an American original. His story is so outlandish, so unbelievable, you'd think it was fiction. It truly is an amazing story. uh, And today you'll hear that. Uh, I'd still highly suggest grabbing a copy of the book as it goes into amazing depth of his journey. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And please tag the awesome folks at Tofurky on Instagram if you're tuning into the show. As always, I'll catch you on the other side to wrap things up. Thanks again for hanging out with us at Veg Talk. All right, Seth. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Veg Talk podcast. Uh, it's a yeah. This is a really awesome opportunity. So thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. I look forward to it. Not a problem. Not a problem. I think I'd like to acknowledge our mutual friend uh, Mimi Clark. Uh, she. She and I met up, I don't know, it must be a year and a half ago now at a, at a food show uh, in New York City. And she actually really helped me to, to get guests on the show and, and link me up with people uh, around the country. So it's, uh, we've had this kind of, she did mention you uh, early on and I knew that at some point in the future we'd be able to get you on the show. So uh, this is a really cool uh, opportunity. So thanks again, Seth. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Mimi. Exactly. Couldn't thank Mimi enough. She's, she's been awesome to me. So me too. I think it would be a really cool, obviously my listeners are, are probably well aware, Seth, that you are the founder of uh, Tofurky. Uh, 
world-renowned company now. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's people all over the globe listening to, to this podcast that are um, very familiar with you and also uh, the brand that you've, you've created. Uh, but before we get into to Tofurky, I'd love to, to rewind the clock a bit. Um, and I suppose that's what your new book about is about is your journey uh, in search of the wild tofurkey. Uh, thank you for sending the copy. Uh, I flew through it and I've now passed it on to my partner, Anna, and uh, she's really enjoying the book as well. But if we, we rewind the clock as you, as you did in the book, um, yeah, I'd love to start in your early days on the East Coast. And uh, if you can just let us all know what it was like growing up as a kid where you were and, and if an entrepreneurial spirit was something that you always possessed. Yeah. So, uh, I grew up in Maryland. My family had, uh, no real history of entrepreneurship. Uh, my parents worked for the federal government and, uh, I did, you know, as a kid, a paper route and, uh, few little businesses like that but really i i thought i would just follow in my dad's footsteps and join the government you know when i was uh growing up in the dc area and then going to uh college in ohio at wittenberg university in 1969 i sort of started making some changes as people will do in college one of which was i became a vegetarian in college you know because i was really meat and potatoes was my um, family's diet growing up and i'd eat like a hamburger every day almost for lunch you know when i at school in high school but in college i had become interested in teaching kids about the outdoors and I had studied uh, a naturalist teacher naturalist uh, form of study at Antioch College which was nearby and I also had this wonderful meal of lentils rice and onions that was um, I believe from the recipes for a small planet or diet for a small planet by Francis Moore LePay, which greatly influenced my thinking because she was the first person that really pointed out that animals were a very uh, inefficient protein converter. You know, you took like 16 pounds of grain and you put it into these animals and they would in turn provide one pound of protein. Now, you know, I say that like thinking that animals are machines and they're certainly not, they're sentient beings. But really back then, um, the only kind of consciousness for vegetarianism was more about low on the food chain eating and eating these grains and beans directly as opposed to sending them through animals. So that was the idea that took hold, you know, the uh, PETA was the first animal rights organization and that was started in 1980. Uh, the SPCA, Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was in business long before that, but they were mostly concerned with companion animals um, and other issues. But there wasn't really even any information on the health aspects of a vegetarian diet. And when I became a vegetarian, I became a very crummy vegetarian, and I was eating crap 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't eating meat, but I was eating my share of vanilla wafers and, <laughs> you know, uh, just different kind of sweets. And, you know, you, it wasn't like today either. You couldn't go to the grocery store and just have this big shelves of which plant-based food am I going to take today in my shopping basket? I mean, even the co-ops in 1971, there was a few buying clubs. Um, so you really were making your own bread, your own granola, your own sort of um, survival foods at home. And so um, I gradually got a little better and better. But then in about 1973 or four, I started reading another book um, about uh, the farm, which is was an attentional community, a spiritual commune of 1,200 hippies living down there in Tennessee, about an hour and a half south of Nashville. And these guys <clears throat> weren't just vegetarians, which I was, they were pure vegetarians. I mean, we didn't even call them vegans, uh, although that's what they were. And, you know, you had vegetarians that ate dairy and eggs, and you had pure vegetarians that didn't eat anything uh, related from animals. And they did that for spiritual reasons. And so in their book, I was, uh, their cookbook, I was reading about different foods and <clears throat> I had started making soy burgers uh, out of these soy grits. That was one of the recipes, you know, in that, those days you could buy, I haven't seen them in a long time, soy grits, they were just little bits and pieces of soybean that were cracked. And I would take those and I'd mash them into a burger with some uh, other spices and everything. And then I'd put them in a pan and saute them. They tasted bad and they digested worse. They were really tough, you know. So when I read in the farm cookbook about this miracle food tempeh that tasted good and digested well, I was like, whoa, what a concept, you know, food that tastes good and you can, you know, digest it without really having, you know, upset stomach. So uh, I went down to work in Tennessee. I got a job teaching high school kids about the outdoors in 1977. And I went over to visit the farm and talked my way in. It took me about three hours to, you know, meet at the gate because they had this gate. It wasn't like you could go online then. There was no online. And, you know, a long distance phone call would cost like, you know, 40 bucks for <laughs> five minutes or something. So we just showed up there and uh, talked our way in. They were so nice to let me stay overnight. And uh, before I left, I, paid $3 for a uh, tempeh starter, a little batch of that, that they were just starting to make there. And I took the starter back to the camp with me, and I made this wonderful batch of tempeh that, you know, Tennessee was perfect, because tempeh, for those of you that don't know, is a uh, the national food of Indonesia. Like you find tofu in China and Japan and Thailand and Indonesia and everywhere in Asia, but tempeh is really kind of focused right on Indonesia. And yeah. Tennessee in the summer is almost exactly like the climate of Indonesia, which is right on the equator. So you have temperatures uh, around 88 degrees, which is the perfect tempeh growing temperature. And I just put this uh, cooked dehulled soybeans and the magic tempeh starter out in a field. And next day I came back, I 
pulled up the covering and whoa, there was this beautiful layer of white mold over these beans. Now I've made tempeh with a lot of people, even people that love tempeh and to a lot of people, they don't understand the mold or they think it's gross. And I like knew from the pictures that it was great and it smelled so good. And I ran in to the staff kitchen and I said, let's cook this up. And we fried it up with a little sweet corn, silver queen sweet corn and okra and big slabs of tomatoes. And it was uh, love at first bite. So brings back was, some good memories. Yeah. Oh yeah. I you know, I still think of that batch of tempeh as one of the best batches of tempeh I've ever had. And, you know, I've had a lot of tempeh since then, but <laughs> nothing like your first love, eh? Yeah, totally. Totally. So to kind of, to deconstruct that a little bit, that book that you read, uh, Diet for a Small Planet, was that was that the catalyst for you deciding then and there that you wanted to become a vegetarian? And did you, uh, did you progress to end up being a vegan? How, how did that kind of um, go for you? Yeah, so that was really um, one of the major factors that turned me vegetarian was diet for a small planet. You know, I, the, the woman that made the meal of lentils, rice, and onions for me, Laurel McGowan, she was also, you know, do, into yoga and Buddhism. And um, she kind of clued me in that animals, you know, we didn't need to eat animals in order to be healthy. So that was the two real factors there that created me, pushed me to vegetarian. And then, you know, I went to veganism like when I read the farm literature and found tempeh and they were making soy milk and tofu and everything like that. But I really, you know, didn't become full-time dyed in wool vegan until 2012 when I uh, was always very close. But it, after visiting the farm sanctuary in Watkins Glen, New York, you know, and lying down with the pigs and having an experience of, you know, the whole sentientness of animals and having a real instructive friend, Lisa Shapiro, that really helped point me towards, uh, you know, open my eyes to the whole uh, sentience of animals. So shamefully, you know, I wish I had done that earlier, but um, it wasn't in 2012 and going to the farm sanctuary that I really became the vegan person that I've been ever since. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible place in, in Watkins Glen. We've, uh, we went through there uh, when we began our, our van travels at the end of uh, 2018. It was our first stop uh, out, of, out of Boston and we met up with Susie Coston and, and did a, uh, a podcast episode with her and, and you're not wrong. When you get that experience with animals that, that we're just so used to honestly seeing on a plate uh, and, and not knowing anything about uh, what happens in between, uh, it was a even being a vegan already, it was a huge uh, eye-opener for us and, yeah, a moving experience, I would say. Yeah, I'm a big uh, supporter, you know, and it's so great to see all these uh, farm sanctuaries now through all over the country. I mean, I, I can't believe how many there are. Um, and yet, I think it was really the farm sanctuary that was the first of its kind um, 
in America. Is that your understanding is that they were the leader? I would say that Gene Bauer is definitely uh, a leader in that space without a doubt. I mean, he's, he's definitely become, yeah, that kind of person, I suppose, almost globally now with social media and, and people being able to digest that information, no matter where you are. I think he really has become renowned for, for leading that, that movement yeah. early on, much like uh, yourself uh, in, in the tempeh business. So I'd love to, to kind of pick up where we left off. So, you know, that's a, that's a really cool story in itself. You've made this tempeh batch in a, uh, in a cooler uh, in, in Tennessee. You've got the perfect temperature. Um, you know, the farm have just started selling their starter kits. Uh, that's, I mean, that's such a small piece of the story, but it's a major, uh, a major breakthrough for you because it really kicked off uh, that love of, of, of making tempeh. Um, right. So what happened after you left the farm? Did you immediately head back to the West Coast or? Yeah, like, well, I worked there the whole summer and then in uh, the end of summer, I uh, my girlfriend and I took off and we were driving all around the east coast but we as we headed west in one of my many $500 used cars that I would drive across country um, <clears throat> I stopped in Springfield Ohio where I'd went to college and what I re remembered when I was in uh, I was starting to think about you know producing foods and um, just I was it was more like I wanted to make it for myself, but it was funny because I walked into a grocery store in that town, and one of the things I was struck with was there was this whole big section of granola, and I was blown away because, you know, first off, like I said, you had to make your own granola in 1971, and then like a year later, somebody in town had started making granola and putting it in these rainbow colored bags and they were selling it in the uh, head shop where they sold zigzag papers and glass pipes and psychedelic <laughs> posters that you needed for this certain... is uh this is the late 70s yeah this is yeah. the, the 70s actually yeah. the early 70s, early you, know, 70s. you needed all these for your to get stoked for your next war <laughs> protest yeah mm -hmm. and then so i was working in that shop and I noticed that right under the pipes and uh, papers, rolling papers, was these bags of granola. That was the only place in town where you could buy granolas. And, you know, hippies would come in there and they'd go, I'll take some of these pipes and uh, papers and give me a bag of granola. I'm going to be hungry later on. So <laughs> it was like perfect. <laughs> and so, and then, you know, you fast forward just five years later and here's granola that migrated all the way to the supermarket. So I was like, hmm, hmm, granola, tempeh, yeah. The hippies were right about granola. They're going to be right about tempeh too, by God. <laughs> and that was like an idea that I, I kept in my head. But I went back to Oregon and I started making tempeh on a regular basis for friends and family and everybody uh, loved it. And then I, I moved out. I was living in a teepee and a barn, a teepee in the summer and a barn in the winter at this retreat center. And I was, I had an old refrigerator that I strung Christmas tree lights up in the, around the sides. And I made, was making like five pounds of tempeh at a time in there for the 
retreat groups that would come out, you know, so, uh, and they were, you know, giving feedback and they, they liked it. And so it was amazing. And then in 1980, um, Ronald Reagan came into power and he didn't like anything environmental. He was shocking to me, you know, he had this guy, James Watt, who was the uh, Secretary of Interior, and they were just kind of, they were, you know, uh, very similar to the current administration in that, you know, they were uh, really kind of cutting back on the environmental uh, movement. And so a lot of the funding dried up for a lot of these jobs that I'd had because I'd been a teacher naturalist in the schools for quite, you know, eight years since graduating from college. And that was my main income. And so anyways, I was like, well, these guys like business. Maybe I'll go into business. And um, that was really funny for me because in college, we used to mock business majors, you know, because business back then was like the status quo. It wasn't like the place for you know, change, uh, cultural change. It was the generals, you know, General Motors, General Electric, General Foods. And it was more like the madmen and business suits and everything. So I, I was like surprised when my friend Bill McKinney had, had hit the uh, jackpot and he had started a nice little shoe business and he was, you know, making a right livelihood repairing people's shoes and I was attracted to that so I said well maybe I'll try tempeh because there's no one making tempeh in the Portland area and there was one tempeh being sold that was coming down from Seattle and I didn't think it was as good as the stuff I could make so I took my 2500 bucks from my life savings as a naturalist and I bought a bunch of pots and pans and went at the tempeh business, I, I went to the local co-op and they said, oh, you can have the kitchen at night. We use it by day, but at four o'clock you can come in and you can be in there till seven in the morning and we'll charge you $25 a month for this kitchen space. So I, I went out and I gathered all this equipment and I could I got it so that I could make 100 pounds of tempeh in eight hour shift. And uh, when it would come out, a lot of times, you know, when you're scaling a product up like that, it would, the batch would overheat or underheat or would sporulate and turn all black. And, you know, it, there was a lot of uh, give and take there for a while. But um, that was really the first break was having this co-op, you know. And co-ops throughout, I mean, I was not only making it, at this co-op but i was delivering to co-ops and even when you get up to the tofurkey part of the story you know you gotta hand it to the co-ops who really you know had something other than a pure money mission you know co-ops were all about you know their their standard line was you know people over profits and they really walked the walk and you know when i look back on the generosity of that uh hope co-op that rented me the space for 25 bucks even by 1980 standards that was really nothing to them and um, it was very generous so I really had a lot of generous help and co-ops were one of the great early adopters of all these products so big yeah. shout out to them no they definitely yeah that was I suppose a really key 
uh, key thing for you in the in the beginning phases to have that opportunity to to be able to learn how to scale up in a kitchen uh, that you were free like you know from four pm onwards you were you were allowed to use it. Um, when it got to what was what was the point where you knew that you had to move on from the co-op? You know things things started to to grow for you, uh, not in a way that you know you you weren't exactly bringing in millions and millions of dollars, but th- things were things were growing for you. But what was the thing that moved you on uh, from that from that co-op? Yeah, so <clears throat> after really a couple of months of um, selling product around Portland. <clears throat> the first product I sold, I think, was February 23rd, 1981. And then on April Fool's Day, I got a call from a wholesaler who was like, we want your tempeh and we think we can sell a thousand pounds a week. And I was like adding it up in my head. Like, Let's see, a hundred pounds a night. You know, the maximum I could make was just a couple hundred pounds in a week. And so I was like, I need to go look for a bigger place and so I started looking around and driving uh, around the area and you know I looked at several like old dairy abandoned dairy farms because you want to in food processing it's important to have like uh, concrete floors with drains you know because you want to wash everything down and that was one of the few things that had drains but I'm pretty glad I didn't go into them because lord knows what would have been in there (laughs) the bacterial load from all those years. But then I looked at this place in Portland that was like a, it was in a basement and it was under a speedometer shop. And every time they calibrated the speedometers, like dead spider parts would fall down (laughs) from the ceiling and it was just no windows. It was horrible. But then I did find this abandoned school building that was about uh, an hour and 15 minutes east of Portland in a very poor county in, um, Washington state and the school building had been sitting vacant for seven years and they were trying to sell it. But I looked in the window and, Oh man, it was the perfect tempeh kitchen. It had beautiful stainless steel sinks. It had drains in the floors and tile floors and a big gymnasium right off the side where I could go practice my free throw shooting and (laughs) breaks and four classrooms that I could, use for offices and rent out. So it was perfect. And I uh, was able to convince the school board to rent it to this prosperous tempeh company <laughs> that was making at that point grossing maybe a thousand dollars a month. So, so how did that go down? So the, the picture that you painted in my head was, was pretty cool. You know, you're, you're going into this town that's hit hard by, the recession at the time. Um, So Houston, Washington, uh, just up the road from Hood River. And, you know, you're you're going in there pitching. It's, was it four people that that were going to be on the, on the, uh, on the panel that you were pitching? Yeah. And uh, it just got to the point of price. And, (laughs) you know, they're, they're eating your tempeh as, as you're chatting. Um, probably thinking, what on earth is this? You know, you got to remember this is this is early 1980s at, at this point. So, um, as you alluded to before, it's not the it's not the time we're living in now, where we go and grab our you know treehouse tempeh and our Beyond Burgers and our Chow Cheese or whatever is on the shelf these days. But 
um, tell us how uh, how that kind of uh, that yeah. pitch went down. <clears throat> so you know, Klickitat County is the county where I live, and that's where Houston was. That's where the school was, and that's where the school board was. Uh, and it's the size of Rhode Island in um, physical size, but it has twenty five thousand people living in the whole county in one stoplight. <clears throat> and it's one of the more, uh, certainly then it was like of all the counties in Washington, it was one of the poorer counties. So, uh, and these guys, you know, this was 1981. Yeah. When even if you had had a meeting with the school board in Portland, you know, you would be lucky to have anybody know what Tempe was or, you know, think that natural foods was ever going to be like a thing and that let alone moldy soybeans were going to be a thing. And so <laughs> I had made this tempeh. I had fried up some tempeh strips and I made a little tempeh salad and, uh, you know, was feeding it to these guys that were just looking at me like I was from Mars and, <laughs> you know, but the, the, the director uh, of the, the superintendent of the school district, Rick Melching had, come from Southern California and he had actually been in a natural food store. So he was more open and <clears throat> that was another uh, stroke of generosity that he was open and he was behind it. So that meant something. <clears throat> and then this woman, Margaret Walker, that was one of the people that I looked over and was eating the tempeh and enjoying it as the other ones were just like, uh, yeah. I don't know about eating these soybeans. I mean, is this safe? Am I gonna they're moldy soybeans? <laughs> and anyways, uh I gave my pitch and then they did come to the point where they said, you know, which I was dreading was how much can you afford to pay? And like I said, I was bringing in a thousand bucks a month and um so it wasn't much, but I figured it's negotiations and I uh, offered uh, $150 a month. I said, I think I could afford that. And all conversations stopped. And it was just this awkward moment. And then, uh, which lasted for, you know, 20, 30 seconds. And then Margaret, the, the woman that liked it, was just like, what do we have to lose? Let's do it. I say we take it. And I was like, yay, this is like <laughs> incredible. And the others eventually caved in to her and, and Rick. But, you know, it was just another example of, you know, everybody thinks like business is like this dog eat dog world. And I don't even think dogs eat dogs, do they? they they're kind of kind animals, but yeah, I don't know where that know. expression <laughs> even comes from. <laughs> but this was like, um, they were so, you know, it was another act of generosity that I'd experienced at the Hope Co-op initially for 25 bucks a month. And now these guys, you know, generous 150 bucks a month. Although I will say there was no heat in the school. So that was kind of harsh in the winter, but the tempeh pots, you know, heated the rooms up that we needed to in the kitchen. And, but it was also the, the water had frozen, you know, in the seven years. So I had to re- plumb a lot of the water and everything in there. So there was problems with, there was like some issues with the building that I had to address. So it wasn't like, you know, a total steal, but it was like amazing. And, uh, you know, just being in the country and the uh, neighbor next door 
had a well that he was selling water to all the houses in Houston and he only charged me $10 a month water. And I was like trying to talk him up and say, I was going to use more, but he was so kind, you know? So sometimes, you know, you go into the country too and people are looser and they're more willing to cut you a break. Cause at that point, everybody in Houston was just trying to survive one way or another. And nobody was really uh, making bank on, on a lot of things, you know? And so um, to have this strange alien guy take over the school and make this alien product tempeh um, on one level, you know, I think people were happy to see somebody in the school and, you know, we'd rent it out. Uh, well, we just for free, you know, people could use the gym for basketball night and we'd show movies sometimes on the weekend and people would want to have parties in the gym and we'd let them do that. So, you know, we were trying to be good neighbors too, but a lot of, there was a lot of generosity, you know, I mean, it, after they found out <clears throat> that I wasn't Bill Gates, <laughs> they were really, uh, you know, seeing who I was. I'll, I'll never forget. I, I did go one day to the post office and the post office, uh, the woman that ran the post office was like, would you like to live in our apartment? You know, and at that point I was living in a, a trailer in back of the school, a camping trailer that smelled like mouse urine. And it was like, I was like an apartment. Does it have a warm shower? Cause I was taking cold showers in the school and she was like, yes. And I was like, well, I'm not a man of means. And <laughs> You know, she was like, oh, no, we wouldn't charge anything. We'd just like to have somebody in there and times are hard and we can't find anybody. And it's just we don't like to see it sitting. And so she gave me, you know, free rent of an apartment like that I probably couldn't afford. So it's like generosity on top of generosity, you know, and I think when uh, entrepreneurs, you know, there's a soft spot in American culture really for somebody that goes out and is taking a risk and working hard and that it attracts people. And I think they want to help. And I think, you know, that that's one of the themes of my life. And in this book that I look back on is just the, all the, you know, I've stood on so many shoulders of so many people that it's hard to even keep track of all of the good things. And that includes, you know, the, the workers that really, you know, were working at a time when I couldn't afford to pay any benefits or even like a good livable wage. You know, we were all just scraping by. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of generosity in this story. And as much as there is like, uh, kind of like you're fired Trumpian, like, you know, <laughs> hardcore business guys and stuff. So anyways. Yeah. I, a question I got from uh, one of my listeners uh, today, I fielded through just through Instagram. I let people know that we were going to be chatting and if they had any questions and she asked, was there ever a time where you thought you were just going to throw in the towel? And and from reading the book, it almost seemed that before you got that elementary school, it, it almost seemed like, you know, it was, it was eating away at you. And there were many times throughout the book before we hit 1995 where 
it, it's just, it seemed immensely difficult on you. Uh, and, and eventually, you know, you have uh, a wife and, and a family as well. Was, was there any point where you were close to, to throwing in the towel? Oh yeah, there were several points, you know, I mean, um, and certainly before I found the school, I mean, that, that point I was, I had looked at so many places and I couldn't afford, they were either set up okay and I couldn't afford them or they were just really junk and I could afford them, but it was going to take a fortune to get them up to food processing. And so the school was a big break. And before that, because you know, I, w- I was trying to work and make the tempeh and distribute it. And then in the spare time, go out and look for a new home. And, you know, I was getting sick and uh, I just was sort of starting to resign myself that this business wasn't going to work. And, you know, I was going to have to uh, go back to teaching or I don't know what. So that was one point. And then, you know, after uh, the first nine years of making tempeh by 1990, I was like uh, looking and taking stock of my life. And, you know, I, I just, the the mission was good and it was growing. And so I was happy about that and doing something I love. But uh, I was also only making, I had made like $31,000. And so I was over 10, nine years. And so obviously the money wasn't there. So I had just done a good job of failing. I figured for nine years. So that was another point where I I was really wanting out, you know, but I mean, it had worked for that length of time because it basically had to work. I didn't have a plan B. I was out there in this part of the world where the occupations were orchardist, logger, um, you know, farmer, and I didn't have skills for any of that. So it was just like, uh, which I think is important, you know, it's just like I had burnt all my ships and uh, I was just having to make things uh, work out. So they, and in 1990, after, you know, I had been at that point, I'd built a tree house and I'd been living in this tree for seven years. And so I had got all these other contacts from treehouse owners all across the country. And I was uh, busy then. I had the idea of writing a treehouse book. And I thought that was my way out of this non-profitable business that was failing. And so I tried to write a proposal. I wrote this big proposal and sent it around and got universally rejected. (laughs) And so (laughs) it was like, well, hello, Tempe. This is my only option. Like back here we are back at the Tempe school. So I was trying to get that to work. And, but I was also then I had um, started to work on, uh, you know, tofu products. Cause I had that time realized that <clears throat> Tempe was going to grow, but it was going to be a slow growth. And at that time, tofu, you know, it already crossed over into a more commercial space like tofuti had come along and like you had tofu ice cream, you had baked tofu. <clears throat> and then we were, my wife actually was making these tofu pies and that's how, how we met was she was a good cook and we made key lime tofu pies and chocolate and all these others. And back then in 1990, like you couldn't have a natural food product with fat. Like fat was the 
gluten or whatever of the day and the, the criminal was, yeah yeah it was criminal to have fat and so we made these delicious pies we sent them out everybody loved them and then we sent them to the lab and it came back like that they were higher fat than the uh egg and milk based key lime pies so we were like eh, not gonna do it although today i look back yeah maybe we could have but anyways uh that was really the moment that I probably was the closest to jumping off was if I had gotten that treehouse book contract, you know, I, I don't think I could have done both, you know, been like a treehouse book writer and a tempeh guy. So a tempeh mogul. To, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, I, so the Tofurky uh, probably wouldn't have come. So maybe it was a good thing. I think it was. I'm oh, thankful now that, I didn't get that contract. Certainly, certainly. And uh, how did uh, how did Sue find the uh, the treehouse style of living? What did, what did she think of that? She wasn't keen on it at all. I mean, she had bought a house, a farmhouse, you know, in Trout Lake, which is near Hewsom, and paid like seventeen thousand dollars for it in nineteen uh, seventy two I think or three and so she had renovated it a little bit you know and she's smart with money and saved money and paid off so we didn't have any debt so she was uh the one that had the house and you know a much more livable space and I had this tiny little you know 200 square foot <laughs> tree house um you know I mean it, it was nice and she liked it okay but it wasn't like somewhere where she wanted to live, especially having this beautiful house. And uh, yeah, the pic- the pictures in the book of the treehouse, honestly, amazing. You uh, you did a pretty cool job. It was uh, it looked like a. I, I would have lived in it. I don't know about Anna, but I, I certainly would have would have given it a crack. It looked uh, it looked awesome. Yeah, it was it was um, a, a wonderful spot to live, you know. And I had uh, like my sleeping platform was upstairs and I had a window right by my bed. And at one point I remember for like weeks and weeks, I was on this route of this flying squirrel that would come in and he would just around in the middle of the night, he'd poke his head right up to the window and he'd just be looking in and checking in on me. It was kind of cool. You know, you had that and you had some, and then the wind would blow, you know, sometimes you'd have these big winds up there and it would rock back and forth like a ship. It it felt like a sailing ship, you know, the way it would sway in the wind. But I had a, a wood stove that, you know, it was a small one that it would just, it really warmed the place up and I had insulated it. So um, staying warm was no problem. I had a, a small little camping propane stove and oven that I had built in there in a little kitchen I had a, a telephone. Maybe you've seen pictures of these telephones that people put on the wall and they had cords to them. Have you seen those? <laughs> Is it the one where you would bring the earpiece up? <laughs> no, Something not, like not that? quite that much, but you were bringing the, the handle up to the uh, phone. So, uh, you know, it was very comfortable um, living and I had electricity up there. I had cold running water. So I was taking my showers down at the tempe shop. Um, but, uh, no, it was magical 
time. And it was right on a uh, piece of land, the neighbor who I was renting from, we built a uh, Frisbee golf course right on this land. So, you know, I wasn't making any money, but I was living the American dream. I had a house on a golf course <laughs> and I had my own gymnasium, you know, I mean, it was these funky versions of it, but it was a lot of fun. You know, you don't need a lot of money to have a lot of fun. I mean, those were fun years. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, yeah. Again, you, you painted a, an amazing picture in the book and I think you, uh, you've told the story uh, so well. And I, I would recommend anyone that's listening to go out and grab a book uh, and, and check it out. Now we're kind of getting close to what's three. It's just turned three o'clock, but I, I would love to kind of, just dive into this, I suppose you could call it the final piece of, of the, uh, the puzzle before everything, everything took off, but uh, your kind of tofurky moment. When, when did that hit you and, and what, kind of, what kind of unraveled after, after that moment? Well, you know, um, the tofurky moment was uh the moment that changed my life and it changed uh really the course of the business and to some degree the course of plant-based foods i guess too in america because it really was a pioneering sort of brand but um in 1995 i had really struggled to find something to eat at thanksgiving as you know a vegetarian and you know people were like happy turkey day well it wasn't a happy turkey day for the turkeys or for me and my friends and we were experimenting with different things and we failed at so many different recipes you know these big long you'd read in vegetarian times it was like these recipes that literally had like uh two full pages of instructions and it would just take forever. And then at the end of the time, you'd probably done something wrong and they just didn't cut it. So I wanted to have, you know, something I could just easily, uh, that was bomb proof and it would taste good and you'd throw it in the oven and voila. So my friend Hans who ran the higher taste and still does, uh, catering and deli, sandwich company in Portland, excellent, excellent food. And they were making this stuff tofu roast and um, they were selling it for, I think 35 or 50 bucks to uh, 25 or 50 of their prime customers. And I was taken by that. They, they called it the stuffed tofu roast and they were selling the stuffed tofu roast in the gravy. And then I was like, Hans, let's, we have these tempeh drumettes that we could make. You know, we were, Sue was working on a burger and then they came in to be uh, more like Thanksgiving tasting. And so we just said, oh, we won't shape them into burgers. We'll shape them into drumsticks and we'll put it in a box and call it tofurkey. And everybody was like, oh, what a terrible name. You know, <laughs> that's so funny. It sounds, sounds like a sneeze or I don't know what. And then, I was like, no, no, it's good. Cause in 1981, I had uh, remembered that a, there was a tofurkey sandwich on the shelf then. And it was just two pieces of whole wheat bread with some baked tofu that sort of reminisced like you would remind you of Turkey. And so I called up the sh sandwich shop that was making those. And they said, we haven't made that sandwich in 12 years. It's a stupid name. Just go for it. 
And so I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, one of the things I noticed was that I had been trying to play it straight for 15 years and be what my twisted idea of what a businessman was and got nowhere. And so when people said, this is too silly and fun, I was like, well, that's kind of who I am. And like, why not just give into it and be authentic and have some fun? Because, you know, I I looked around at the marketing of the day and it was kind of dry in the natural food and in the tempeh, tofu, meat alternative sort of genre. So I just, uh, you know, went with Tofurky and uh, it turned out to be a name that resonated with people. Like people, once you get to the shelf, it was it was a tough sell at the fancier health food stores. Again, the co-ops embraced it. In fact, Foodfront Co-op was the big one in Portland and they just grabbed onto it and they started selling it right away and taking special orders. And then Puget Consumers Co-op in Seattle was the other one that took it on. And they did so well with it at Thanksgiving that they had to create a Tofurky hotline where people would call in and they'd order it or have questions. So that was like amazing to me to see that. And then the the radio and the TV started talking Tofurky because that same week that um, I came out with the first Tofurky, the New Yorker published this surrogate tofu cartoon, which was all about having rock hard sculpted tofu turkey. And it was like a whole page of a cartoon and it was <laughs> slamming tofu turkeys. And I was like, wow, this is amazing because. And that was sort of the attitude of the day, too. That was just like, you know, a crazy idea, but not to the people who understood the niche. And, um, you know, we put little self-addressed stamped um, postcards in each box because we wanted to hear what customers thought of it. And so they started coming back in after the Thanksgiving holiday. And it was just like, oh, my God, I love this. And oh, I've been waiting 20 years for this. I'm not a second-class citizen anymore. I have something I can be proud of. I can put it in the center of my table. This is awesome. So right then and there was sort of this, uh, what I call the Kairos moment. You know, the Greeks have two words for time. They have chronos, which is chronological time, you know, 21st, 22nd, 23rd date. And then they have this Kairos concept, which is the time when time stands still and you can finally, you've been beating your head against some wall and a problem, and then you can finally see your way through. And that was it for me, you know, because I just had the sense that this was going to grow and it was going to take the company into places that I could never have imagined um, before. And we would still make tempeh. We still make tempeh. But um, I had it for lunch, to be honest. Oh, good, good. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, I love to yeah. eat tempeh, you know. I mean, it, when I eat tempeh, I just feel so powerful and light but strong. It's really an amazing food. So hats off to tempeh, but hats off to tofurkey too. It's really, you know, um, been amazing to just be part of this plant-based foods revolution that we see now it's breathtaking to me to see after all those years of struggle and 
you know, I still have kind of like PTSD from those years of just you know, struggling. So I just, you know, any small account or a small whim from a customer that you want to, you know, you just want to, it's taught me to really be humble and to take care of, um, you know, the small customers is the same as the big because, you know, these small people have a way of becoming big. And I love to see these small vegan startups now that um, have all these innovative ideas and the big vegan startups too, you know, like Beyond and Impossible and those guys. I just love all the vegan brands and think that they hopefully will all succeed. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've certainly paved the way for, for this generation uh, to, to be able to walk into a market where it's, you know, people are basically throwing money at these companies to be a part of it and to help raise capital. Uh, and you certainly, yeah, you certainly worked away uh, when there, when there, there was no such thing. So I'm sure um, they would, they would be thanking you for, for all the hard work uh, that you did uh, in those years where it was super difficult. I, I do wonder, like you were throwing names up at, at one point and Tofurky you went with and, and the other people were saying like, you know, pretty bland kind of business like names. Um, I do like, imagine if you had a gone with one of those names, it, it could have been yeah. a completely different uh, venture. Oh yeah. You know, there's a lot of magic in a name, you know, I mean, yeah. Cause, uh, Seth Godin, you know, said something like, you know, he's this marketing guru. He said, people don't buy products. They buy relationships. They buy, uh, a, you know, magic. Um, so they buy stories and <clears throat> the Tofurky, you know, has this story and it has magic and, um, you know, I think that that's really one of the keys, you know, to any entrepreneur is just having a good story. Like, you know, the, the impossible burger is such a great story. It's a great elevator pitch. Oh, what's your burger? Oh, it's made with plant blood. Oh, really? You know, I mean, that's a story right there that you can tell succinctly and, you know, beyond has a really good story. I mean, beyond is a beautiful name beyond me. So both those guys have really hit uh, the branding out of the park, you know, I think the branding story and, um, just the magic end of things. And, you know, like those, those guys, along with all vegan entrepreneurs, they all have this mission base too. And that's really the superpower I think of all vegan brands is that embedded in the DNA is some kind of mission. I've yet to see a vegan company that was all, money mad and that was their only reason to be in business so i really think that because you know the 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 mission's always there when the money's not and the longer you stay in business you know the longer the the less stupid you become and the more able you see things and you're just sticking around you're sticking around you're maybe not taking off yet but you're learning every day and and the mission will help you get to the Tofurky moment. You know, it helped, like it helped me to get to that moment. So I think that mission-based brands and vegan brands for that reason have a greater uh, chance of succeeding. 
Yeah, it's that mixing of the, you mix the meaningful work with, I suppose, mix the meaningful work with a, a business that uh, comes in at the right time and you're prepared, you're ready. You'd put in the hours and hours behind the scenes and, and boom, uh, you're able to carry on because uh, you know you were equipped with the tools uh, at that time uh, to know exactly at least how to move forward and keep fine-tuning Tofurky, and you're still doing that today. You guys are, you know, you're not stepping off the pedal. You're uh, continuing to innovate, and you've got a new line out um, and like a, a new brand. Is it is it uh, Mucho? Mucho, yeah. We have the Mucho cheesecakes, Mucho cheese, you know, which we were set to launch in early March at the trade show down in Anaheim Natural Products Expo, which Mimi goes to from time to time. I was hoping to see her there, but that flamed out. And uh, so now though, you know, I mean, with everybody not eating out so much and also quarantining, you know, the orders for Tofurky have just been astronomical. They've like doubled, you know, uh, over the past month or two. So, Really, our focus uh, has to be, at, you know, keeping our employees healthy and social distance and, you know, then putting food on people's plates, you know, and keeping the food system intact because, and um, that's a, a one-two punch that's really uh, takes a lot of time and energy now. So it is an all hands on deck, you know, with recreating safe procedures in the Tofurky plant which Jamie, my stepson, just has done a great job. He's been one step ahead of things. Like he's a PhD science guy. He got his PhD in neurobiology from the University of Washington. And so he understood the virus and its implications like before others. And so he implemented things early, which really has helped, uh, you know, in terms of keeping the workplace safe because others, you know, had to, shut down and quarantine and have all these problems. And it's not to say that, I mean, it's so crazy right now that, you know, one person with a virus can have such, can, you know, pass it on to so many people. So we're still fingers crossed and being very vigilant, but um, having started and put these um, things into place early, um, staggering lunch shifts and making sure that you don't have more than 10 people in a room at one time and, you know, keeping social distance, hand washing. We've brought up uh, pay raises earlier than we were going to give them so that people could have more money because a lot of people have partners that have been let go from their work and, you know, just everything that we can do to keep the pipeline film so it's it's not and stores aren't look they're in the same situation you know grocery stores so they're not it's a bad time to be launching a product in a store too because the buyers they're just trying to keep food in the shelves as well so nobody's really looking at you know oh let's reset this shelf now and put new products on the shelf so it's really uh we're just waiting for better calmer seas to uh really send out the the mucho cheese brand but it's good i mean it's a real fresh take on cheese and i'm really happy with the way it came out so that'll be something to look forward to when we get through this 
Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I suppose priorities have shifted. Um, so sorry to hear that, but at the same time, excited to, to give it a crack and, and try it out. Um, and one final thing, I'd love to hear a little bit about the building you're in right now. I feel like it's a full circle moment for you being an environmental um, minded person, you know, way back early on. Uh, I can't even imagine what it was like in the seventies to be, uh, to be part of that um, community, uh, being an environmentalist yeah. and now to have the building that you do in Hood River. Yeah. Well, first of all, you should come out sometime and take a tour when, again, in better times, because we've shut down all tours and we're only having employees. That's another thing, you know, that are coming in the need to come in the building. But yeah, no, it was, uh, we broke ground in 2011 and then um, actually moved in in 2015, I think. And um, this is you know, not just my vision, but it was Jamie's vision too. I mean, it was not even really something that we talked about long and hard, you know, in terms of should we do this or not? We were just like, if we're going to build this, let's make it the most environmental uh, friendly building we can. So we built it to lead platinum standards, which means that the, you know, you get points for having like, we have uh, solar panels on the roof that uh, over 400 panels and free electric car charging that comes down from the sun to your car. That's pretty clean. And then a lot of, uh, we used old shipping pallets to make cabinets and everything and counters and tables out of uh, trees that we found floating in the Columbia River. Actually, we found this big cedar tree that we pulled out of the river and made an amazing table um, and different shelves out of. So, um, you know, it's just <clears throat> a time, I mean, that's our ethic and, uh, <clears throat> the biggest point is probably trying to, you know, just make sure that you have vegan foods. That's your biggest environmental impact, but having the, uh, building be so environmental is just icing on the cake. Totally. Seth. You are a phenomenal human being. Um, I'm, you know, really, really thankful that you, you've done all the work you've done and you've joined us today on the podcast. Uh, so yeah, once again, thank you. Can't wait to meet you in person. We'll definitely be coming down uh, to the plant when, when it's safe Good. to do so. We did actually, we did check out Hood River when my parents were here earlier in the year and we, we parked in the parking lot right near, uh, is it Stoked, the cafe? Yes. Yeah. It's a coffee shop. Yep, exactly. So we, we, we know we, we saw the Tofurky building. Uh, we, uh, just hadn't, hadn't had any dialogue then. So, um, oh. yeah, looking forward to it, mate. Uh, really looking forward to meeting you and, and, and thanks once again. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, Seth. Hey guys, thanks for being here today. I hope you enjoyed the show with Seth. He's a super humble and down to earth bloke. Anna and I are really looking forward to heading down to Hood River when this is all over to meet up and take a tour of the Tofurky factory. If you love Seth's story as much as we did, please go and purchase a copy of the book. I promise you will not regret it. It's an inspiring story of really hard work, determination, filled with compassion for animals and humans uh, to create a nourishing food that is 
good for us and the planet. It really is a ripper. Please stay safe, look after one another, and I'll catch you all for next week's show with the guys from the Organic Grill podcast. It's called OG Talk NYC. Until then, keep it plant-based. I'll see you all next week.